Hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident. Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not the Mouthwash way. We're doing things a bit differently this season, exploring all sides of power. What's driving the world, what's hard and soft power during during the pandemic and what's coming after it. Who's got power, who wants it, how can you get it and a lot more besides. It's going to be an amazing season. I've curated some incredible brains. And joining me every episode is one smart cookie of my choosing. Tonight's cookie is the foremost space analyst in the business, Laura Forsick from Astrolytical. Welcome to the show, Laura. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Before I chat with Laura, a bit about where we are and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter, so let's explore it a bit so that everyone knows what to do. On the mobile app, the top of the, uh, the bit at the top is called the Nest. So that's where I put Will Start Soon up there at the moment, you can see. Um, it's very handy uh, and speakers or uh, myself can post tweets up there like the ones you see and we can discuss them. We actually use that in a special section we have later on called Desert Island Tweets. You can click through to follow accounts, links we put up and that sort of thing. It's pretty handy and a unique feature to uh, Twitter Spaces. You can see all your faces and the speakers are at the top. Spaces allow up to 11 speakers at a time, including the Host, so you can have a really good chat with multiple voices, but it's not a massive free-for-all, which I kind of like. Um, if you want, request the mic at the bottom left when you're in a Twitter space, although Mouthwash is more of a show format, so we actually take questions via the hashtag Mouthwash Show. Uh, if you want to do that, please do or feel free to DM. I do check during the show as much as I can. Um, Twitter has also recently introduced a slew of uh, monetization features, so you know that they're serious about spaces. There'll be lots of stuff coming um, over the next few months as well. If you look at the bottom right of your phone screens, you'll see some icons, dots, people, hearts, etc. The dots are where all the settings are, so you can turn on captions if you need them, for example, and there's lots of other bits in there as well. Click uh, on the one on the right, the staple with the arrow pointing out, like I mentioned before, and you'll let the world know that you've found something great. Um, for every person that you bring into the space, a tree is actually going to get planted, courtesy of the very nice people at Ecology, who make offsetting your carbon footprint super easy. If you want to find out more about Ecology, just nip over to ecology.com, that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. And whether it's personal use or your business, Elliot and the team over there are great partners to work with. Um, oh, thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Um, Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner, uh, all in steps of society. Uh, find out more uh, over how Shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. Now, click the heart with a plus by it and you'll see emojis that you can use throughout the show. So let's practice by showering Laura in emojis while I tell you a bit about her. So uh, don't stop until I'm finished. Are you ready? All right. Ready, steady, go. Laura is a space junkie, but not only that, she's a NASA subject matter expert too. As owner of Astrolytical, one of, if not the only, woman-owned research consulting and publishing firm in the US, Laura and the team focus on the big picture outlook of the space sector for a global clientele of corporates, members of Congress to European governments. Spanning science, technology, exploration and public policy, Laura has a unique experience and perspective which made her perfect for mouthwash. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Um, let's start with what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning after that incredibly long intro? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have um, a little baby, 10 month old. So I wake up several times in the morning and the very first thing I think of is I want to go back to sleep. <laughs> but she gets me up at like six and my husband is a morning person. So he takes her and then I fall back asleep. But 
the first thing I do when I'm really, truly wake up in the morning is I think about what I'm going to do in the day and the exciting things that are happening in the day. Um, so, or, or this week, since it's the beginning of a week and we've got some really cool things coming up in the space industry this week, uh, maybe as soon as, um, you know, this weekend, there might be a Virgin Galactic crude flight, which I'm really excited about. So there's some pretty cool things. I mean, it's still a holiday, um, you know, in, in today in the United States, but, um, you know, kind of easing back into the week, there's some really good things I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I do want to talk about brands a little bit later, but how have the last 12 months been for you in the space industry? It's been pretty busy, right? Oh, this year's been packed. Oh my gosh. It's last year I must admit, last year was a bit crazy, a little slow because no one really knew what was going on with the pandemic. And um like there was some slowdown in some places because some people kept pushing on. Um and this year has just been full speed ahead. It's been shocking to me. And I've been watching this industry for over a decade now. It's been one of those things that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for a lot of certain things to happen with certain milestones, certain companies, even things being decided in Congress. And I feel like this year, it's finally coming all together. We might not see everything happen this year. But finally, things are really moving and picking up. And that's been a real pleasure to watch. Because I don't believe that um, you, you have to have real patience in the space industry. You have to know that everything's going to be delayed, and just expect schedules to slip. And I, I this year so far is breaking my expectations because I, I definitely see some things happening this year and already that have um, that were not on my list of things to expect this year. So I'm really pleased. What, what specifically weren't you expecting this year? Mm, yeah, so the first crude flights of um, New Shepard and uh, the first let's say commercial flight of Virgin Galactic. I think that's the proper way to say that. Um, so those two things happening this year, I didn't necessarily expect them this year. I thought they could happen this year. I did not necessarily expect them to happen this summer. So that's been really exciting. Um, looking forward to the selection of, um, I'm going to assume the selection of SpaceX as the first provider for the Artemis program, sending humans to the moon on Artemis 3. Probably not in 2024, but they're still aiming for 2024. Um, I, I knew that selection would happen, but NASA's really been moving that program really fast. Um, as they need to if they're going to make that deadline. So that's been happening this year, along with a lot of backing from Congress as to um, how they're going to fund that in the future beyond just that first landing and looking forward to moon bases and that kind of thing. It's really exciting. And then also there's been a lot of activity happening with um, satellite servicing um, starting last year and picking up this year, um, launches of certain missions and other missions planned. And it's just been um, that's a totally different topic. So some of you might not know what I'm talking about there, but there is a lot of stuff in space, a lot of stuff that we put in Earth orbit that, um, you know, some of it is active, you know, so a lot of satellites that are sending data down or, or doing something or another that we want it to. There's a lot of stuff that's dead. So satellites that no longer work or rocket boosters that we just abandoned up there. And then there's a lot of space debris, just pieces of things. And it's really important in the future that we find ways to clean up our environment. So there's certain technologies technologies to mitigate against this. And there's certain technologies to go ahead and clean it up. So that's what I mean when I say satellite servicing or more broadly space debris mitigation and, and cleanup. And I'm really happy to see some progress there as well. Yeah, that, it's definitely been an interesting 12 months when you think about the different um, elements that, that go up in space. Uh, I'll, I'll share an image later that sort of helped me focus it in my head. But um, 
let's help people understand a bit more about the size and scope of the issue that we're talking about. The number um, varies, but space is um, an industry worth over 400 and almost 20 billion today. Um, and I think it was Morgan Stanley said that they were rumoring that 1.4 trillion is probably likely by 2030. When it comes to the major players, and I know you've mentioned a few names, um, who, who are they? And can you give us an idea of their size and actual power in the industry? So traditionally speaking, the big players in space are still the telecommunications companies. They've been active the longest. They We rely on them for, for everything without thinking about it, right? All the, the broadcasts that we get over satellite, the data. I'm not even talking about these new Leo constellations that SpaceX and others are putting up. I'm just talking about these, cons- these uh, higher satellites that are up in higher orbits that um, we just take for granted are up there that help us connect around the world. Um, Earth observation satellites, weather satellites, you know, those are the kinds of things. Some of them are government operated, but some of them are also commercial or um, some kind of partnership. And those are the ones that still make the most money because those are the ones that are really taken for granted in our modern society. We, we use them as part of our infrastructure and we don't even consider that we're using them. GPS is a great example. That's not commercial, that's government run, but that is something that every one of us uses, not just for directions, but for accurate timing and navigation and um, you know, all of our financial transactions are accurately timed and that kind of thing. So all of those that have been up there and sort of um, integrated into our modern society Society, those are the ones that really make really good money because the, the ones that aren't government run, I mean, because they are the ones that we don't even think about that we need, but we do need them. And then there's the newer players that are coming on board. You know, the transportation services get a lot of attention, but they're generally not the largest. Actually, in fact, they're a pretty small segment of the space industry. Um, so it's a lot of things like manufacturing of satellites and um, components and, and, you know, just satellite servicing, I shouldn't say satellite servicing, space servicing, um, whether that's integration of things or data processing. So a lot of the big companies, the primes, we call them contractors, they are the ones that also make a lot of money in this area, um, most of the time in the defense arena. And so that's not my primary area of expertise. So I can't really go into specifics, but you can imagine the big primes, um, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, um, you know, those are the kinds of big companies out there that have been operating in space for decades and really have those government contracts. Um, and I focus here on the United States, of course, it's probably a global audience and I'm less familiar globally with some of the big players in terms of who makes the most money around the world globally, because a lot of it is still operated from certain countries. You know, a lot of the times it's a civilian space agency or a military operation or, you know, some countries don't make a distinction and it's just a plain government agency of some kind or another. And so still a lot of it is government operated, but we are seeing real progress, especially here in the United States, but then around the world also in other places where companies are starting to take over where the government used to be primary. And for example, um, about a decade ago here in the United States, we had a transition to something called the the Cargo Resupply Services Program, which we still see operational today, where SpaceX and used to be Orbital ATK, and now it's Northrop Grumman, resupply the International Space Station. That used to be something that space shuttles did. Space shuttles retired in 2011. It took these companies a little bit of time to get on board to be able to resupply the space station, but they did it, along with the Russian, um, they've got their, their progress vehicles, 
the Japanese, they've got their vehicles, um, but those are government vehicles. Here in the United States, we've transitioned from government vehicles to commercial vehicles to resupply space station. Same with com commercial crew. So we had two providers chosen for the commercial crew program. It used to be Space Shuttle, right? Now it is the SpaceX Crew Dragon, and hopefully in the future, the Boeing Starliner. So that's the kind of thing we're seeing is diversification of commercial operations here in the United States, where governments used to be primary or only. And now it's either a partnership or commercial operators that the government then pays for services. Interesting. So when you, you said it, it, a lot has diversified recently and over the last sort of 10 years, who, who's actually in charge up there? Is it governments or is space somewhat open season, open source? What actual rules are there? There's quite a lot, and it is governed by individual countries, individual players, and most of them have signed the, um, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and that is, um, that is an agreement that was established back in the 60s, but has continued to be today one, like the primary source of where you think uh, you have your responsibilities internationally for how parties should operate in space. And so it is run by countries, but the countries are responsible for the individuals and the companies that operate within their borders. Um, and so if, for example, a U.S. company should do something that breaks the Outer Space Treaty, the United States government is liable for that. And again, I am not a lawyer, so I'm not going to go into too many details there. There are some other treaties, um, other uh, things that there might or may not be responsible for in, in international law. Um, there's one that the United States has not signed called the Moon Treaty. Um, most players, in fact, in space have not signed the Moon Treaty, but there are some that are. And there's other ones as well, the registration convention. There's things that tell us internationally what we've agreed to as a globe. <laughs> and though not every single country has signed, all the major players have signed the Outer Space Treaty. And then there's um, some newer things that are coming up. The Artemis Accords, for example, that has been established by the United States to have these norms and agreements as to how to operate in space. And most of it are things covered in the Outer Space Treaty, but sort of modernized and especially focused on the Artemis program that NASA is currently undergoing, that's the moon program, the humans to the moon, and then eventually on to Mars. Um, there's one area in there that people might think is an area that is not under the Outer Space Treaty. Um, we in the United States believe it is. There are you know, some lawyers around the world that believe it isn't, and that is property rights in space. So that is a big question mark right now. There are four countries that have formally established the right to own property in space. This is not claiming sovereignty. This is um, companies or individuals going there to mine resources either on the moon or Mars or asteroids, wherever, and then sell those, you know, either sell the raw materials or sell the products from that. Products being, you know, you, you break it up into hydrogen and oxygen, or you can create water or, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to to, to mine. Um, you know, helium-3 is one of those ones that's thrown out there as a possibility for the future. You know, so whatever the resource is that you're mining, you want to have the, the, legal, the legality behind you to be able to sell that. And here in the United States, according to the Artemis Accords, that is legally possible, whereas elsewhere in the world, it is not legal <laughs> and is still um, an area of contention. And then there's like individual laws, like here in the United States, you can't just launch anything. You have to go through the FAA. That's the Federal Aviation Administration. And they have to approve every launch and every landing that is not a government launch or landing. And they also have certain approvals as to 
um, ways to protect people on the ground. So, for example, that Virgin Galactic flight that I was just talking about, they just got their waiver or their change of license, I should say, from the FAA to say, yeah, we've certified that this upcoming flight on June or July 11th is safe for the public on the ground. FAA isn't the only one. There's also uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. They um, regulate broadband. So we all communicate through like radio, for example, and they regulate which I think it's funny because I'm a physicist, right? So I'm talking about regulating physics here. <laughs> I'm talking about regulating parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, so I find <laughs> this funny, but <laughs> it is practical, right? You can't have people communicating over the same band and then um, have that kind of interference. So the FA, F, I'm sorry, FCC regulates who gets to communicate where and it's not just space, it's also terrestrial uses. NOAA regulates certain things. I mean, there's all kinds of regulations. So no, it's not a free for all. It's not the wild western space there's actually quite a lot going on mm. the media seems to be hooked on those three people musk bezos and branson um, when it comes to the space arena do you think their power is increasing in the area is it staying the same how's the pandemic affected that how's the pandemic oh okay so there are definitely things that were delayed because of the pandemic but i wouldn't say that pandemic has really prevented anyone from gaining strength or power or advances the technology. Um, there are some that, in fact, maybe took advantage of the fact that um, they could work, they could they were considered essential um, and therefore could continue to work where others couldn't. Um, so the interesting thing about these billionaire founders of space companies, and you just mentioned three big ones right there, Elon Musk, founder of SpaceX, Jeff Bezos, founder of Blue Origin, Richard Branson, founder of Virgin Galactic, also Virgin Orbit, which is a non-crewed company that just made its second flight um, sending satellites to orbit. Uh, so these three founders have decided that they appreciate and love space so much that they're going to put their time and resources behind these companies because it is challenging. <laughs> it is very challenging to succeed in space. Um, you know, SpaceX almost went bankrupt early on. Um, Blue Origin has had its challenges recently. Um, Virgin Galactic has certainly had its challenges with some early accidents. Um, and we're all going to hope for the best because all three of these companies now are launching people or will launch people. And it's different when you're launching just satellites versus people, because then you have lives on the line. And it does make you more powerful. I mean, SpaceX launching for the first time their Demo 2 mission, the two NASA astronauts that flew May 30th, 2020, to the International Space Station on a Crew Dragon, that was huge. That elevated SpaceX's um, status in a way, because now they weren't just launching payloads. They were launching people. And they're, again, like I said, the, the first company to ever to orbit, which was previously only governments. You know, um, SpaceX was initially a contract. In fact, when the commercial crew program was initially established, there was a pushback saying we shouldn't trust the one who has expertise. Uh, why should we trust these newcomers? And the, the other player was Boeing. So no, Boeing is not a newcomer, right? Um, so there was a lot more trust in Boeing and then in SpaceX. Boeing's the one now delayed, unfortunately, mm. whereas SpaceX has succeeded already. Um, so it did elevate SpaceX to have capability. And I think we're going to see now these that are more people suborbital 
Galactic and Blue Origin. Hopefully, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic has already made a few test flights with people on board. Blue Origin has not yet made any test flights, any flights at all with people on board, but they have successfully flown payloads. That does elevate them because they will be the first commercial companies to then be able to launch people. And that puts them at the very front of this new suborbital you know, space tourism, private spaceflight market. Mm. So Bezos and Musk are slinging up satellites all the way through to space tourism. What other opportunities are we going to see? <laughs> Bezos hasn't yet, actually. <laughs> Unfortunately, Bezos hasn't yet. <laughs> so, yeah, he's trying. He's got a, He's got um, his moon shepherd, which is, quote, not to orbit, but to suborbit. And then the the new Glenn rocket is the orbital one that has not yet come to fruition. Um, and then they're also trying to get to the moon through NASA's Artemis program, through the Human Landing System, HLS program. Um, and so Blue Origin's trying, but they haven't done it yet. Virgin Orbit has however they have succeeded in launching satellites um and and i didn't catch the other part of your question i just want to make sure that was clear Got it. i'm with you thank you for that um what what opportunities are we going to see arise in the next 10 or 20 years there is so much opportunity to grow in the niches that are being established so SpaceX isn't just launching people to the space station, right? So they are also launching people into free-flying orbit. They've got a mission later this year, Inspiration 4, where they're launching four people who have never flown to space before, who are not government-trained, government-selected at all. They're private individuals, and they're launching them just, just to free-flying space for a few days around mm-hmm. in orbit, um, you know, not to the International Space Station. So that opens up a lot of potential there where you don't need government approval. NASA highly regulates the International Space Station. They've decided only to private astronauts not missions a year. Um, you know, Russia is a little bit more open. Russia is allowing more than that. Um, but if you're going to go through NASA, it's it's much more selective, much more um, you know difficult to break through those barriers. So to have that capability to then fly people free flying in orbit, just going around on a crew dragon, I think that's that opens up a tremendous amount of opportunity there for anybody who wants to fly in space. But more than that, they've got their Starlink program. That's their commercial. Um, LEO, which is Low Earth Orbit Constellation System, that wants to do um, data, so internet, broadband internet, down to either individuals or communities that either don't have access to the internet right now or have poor access to internet. Um, And so that opens up a lot if it succeeds. It opens up the opportunity then to break into that kind of market where, especially here in the United States and probably elsewhere around the world, we actually don't have very good broadband internet access, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, And so if that becomes successful, if they're able to make money that way, um, that could be an opportunity to then make a lot of money that they would be less vulnerable to, um, you know, government contracts uh, come not coming through or being canceled, etc. And then on the suborbital side. So we're talking about Virgin Galactic. That's their primary focus is suborbital. And they want to be the primary mover and shaker of suborbital transportation. Um, that could be here in the United States. They're operating from Spaceport America in New Mexico. But it also could be other places around the world. They've indicated at least two, um, probably many more sites where they want to operate from. So there are places around the world that have no access to space, couldn't even imagine having access to space. So if Virgin Galactic comes with their system, all they need is a runway. 
and they can operate from any any runway that allows them to if they've decided that they're safe and, and you know if they all have all the government agreements in place. Um, so that opens up a lot of potential there. I already talked about how Blue Origin has their their fingers in lots of different places. It's not just suborbital. Um, they've got norbital. They've got engines that they're selling to another company called United Launch Alliance. They've got um, their their mission where they want to go to the moon. Um, they've got I mean send people into the moon I should say, and they've got plans greater plans to do commercial space stations um after the international space station retires it's not going to last forever it's been up there over 20 years already so after it retires nasa plans to buy space on commercial space stations and blue origin wants to be one of those so there's a lot of potential to grow in the next decade we might see commercial space stations it'll probably be more like two decades i'm hoping sooner the better but like i said everything's always delayed yeah you, you help governments and countries decide where to put the space ports that you've been talking about and other elements and that sort of thing. do you think brands should be thinking long term about these spaces now um or should they be investing in space at all what's your best advice for them it's a balance. It's a balance of short term where you want to accomplish something, because if you're just hanging on forever, accomplishing nothing, then you're not taking seriously and you're not accomplishing anything. And if you're trying to make any kind of return on investment, then you're not you're not doing that if you're not um, you're, if you're too focused on the long term. However, you do need to be focused on the long term if you um have plans to operate in a space that is fast growing, fast evolving, and will be quite populated in the future. The space is an area that is just growing so much. Um, That figure that you quoted earlier, I take question because there's a lot of double counting in a lot of these estimates as to what the industry looks like in terms of, you know, the the overall economy of space. And there's a lot of double counting there. So you always have to take those things with a grain of salt when you hear them. Mm -hmm. But Without a doubt, the space industry is growing tremendously. In fact, I don't even like to consider it the space industry. What it is, is space is a place to operate. It is just a location. And there's many, many, many industries that already operate or could operate in the future. And it's all those different possibilities. That's what excites me the most. My very first job in the space sector was, um, full-time job, I should say, was identifying different ways that non-space players could get involved in space in low Earth orbit. And introducing that to them and helping them get their science or their technology research or um, R&D or whatever it was, helping them to get to the International Space Station to, uh, you know, just kick off something that they might not have even thought was possible. And that opens it up to people who had never considered space before. And that leads to that tweet I sent you early, which I'm sure what we'll talk about later, just getting in people involved who never thought space was available for them and making sure they know that they can personally go or they can do their business in space. They can grow their industry in space. They can use space data. That's where it's really exciting to see the growth. I, I agree. I think that's a really interesting area. When we think about yeah, when we think about growth, I think some people are shocked when they actually hear that there are actually hundreds of satellite manufacturers all over the world, and there's a tiered system, no two created equal, and that sort of thing. Um, how strong a factor is commoditization uh, going to be in the next ten years for the space industry? Do you think? It's one of those things where space traditionally has been government run, and it's a mindset shift. So. When you there's different philosophies, right? There's people who think that governments should remain primarily involved, and they're the ones who are most responsible. They're the ones who are accountable to their citizens, their you know their constituents. Um, 
and therefore space as a commodity or space activity as a commodity or space data as a commodity is seen as sort of dirty. On the other hand, if you want sustainability, um, economic sustainability, sustainability in terms of progress, then you need to you know, I, I'm speaking as a capitalist here, right? You need to have a profit. You need to have a return on investment. You need to have some way to make money. And therefore, that space data, space access, space resources, et cetera, um, you know, finding those different ways that people can make money in space and therefore continue to grow that, continue to advance that. Um, and then there are the people who think that maybe we shouldn't be entering space at all because we're just going to we're just gonna dirty it up as we have dirtied up our planet. But um, one of the beautiful things about space is that it actually helps the environmental movement. When we um, can better the technology through space that we use on Earth, we can better the life on Earth. We can better the processes on Earth. We can even remove some of the dirty processes that we have on Earth, that industrial process and maybe take them off Earth, or we can find the resources instead of digging mines here on Earth, we can find them elsewhere on pl- bodies that do not have life. I mean, there's just endless possibilities on ways that we can help planet Earth by commoditizing, um, you know, either space, literally space, like the, the actual geographic nothingness of space, or space resources as they're out there right now, which as far as we know, there is no ecosystem close by to us that we would be ruining. It's just barren rocks. Um, um, you know, that doesn't say I think it's fantastic that we're looking for life in space, a totally different topic. I'm totally fascinated by some of these really great moons that we have in our solar system, and the possibilities there. Um, but as it is right now, we're not ruining anything in space by going there and mining it. Um, we are instead perhaps opening up different ways that we can get resources that we wouldn't be ruining um, places here on Earth. That leads me on to a question I was going to ask you later because it's slightly... Um... Snatchy, I think is the phrase. Um, it, it costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of resources to get up in space and that sort of stuff. What would you say to the people who believe we shouldn't be spending billions on other planets and sort of exploration and instead focusing on fixing Earth problems? Yeah, every bit of money that we spend in space is actually spent on Earth. And 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 I, I did reference my first job, and I still do this in my current job, is that we are using space to better life on Earth. All the different technological advantages, all the different um, you know, ways that we can improve science and understanding of science, and even the really basic R&D. Like, so my background is in planetary science and astrophysics. And what benefit is there to go study um, Ganymede, for example? That's the moon of Jupiter. And why, why would you go out there and study Ganymede? Well, maybe Ganymede being the biggest moon in our solar system can teach us something. Maybe it can teach us something about our planet. Well, you know, Venus, Venus is a hot topic right now. NASA is sending two missions to Venus. The European Space Agency is sending a mission to Venus. There's a company called Rocket Lab, which is sending its own little mini mission to Venus. Venus is one that's talked about a lot in, in children's textbooks, especially of like, you know, how do you get this um, runaway effect that we see in Venus and turn it into a hell world where Venus is roughly the same size as Earth, but it is not hospitable at all. It is really literally a hell world for us humans. Um, so how do you prevent Earth from turning into a hell world? So there's just really basic R&D like that, basic science understanding. When you look to see the diversity of what's out there, and now I'm speaking as a planetary scientist, there's thousands of exoplanets. Exoplanets are planets outside of our solar system, not not revolving around our sun. Um, So there are thousands that we've discovered, and there are countless. We have no idea. I mean, there's estimates out there, but we truly don't have any idea how many planets there are in the universe, because we just don't know how many stars there are in this universe, so we don't know how many planets 
you know, on average are around a star. There are some planets that have actually been thrown out and don't even orbit stars. I mean, like there's just so incredible diversity out there. And the diversity that we learn through studying our planets, moons, exoplanets, exomoons, I mean, all of that can teach us so much about our own planet and how we can best take care of our own planet. So there's the really practical stuff, like how do you improve the materials um, by sending materials to the vacuum of space and the radiation of space? And how do you use that improvement of materials to better life on Earth? But then there's the really um, basic R&D of, you know, what what happens if we study this new form of you know, gravitational waves that we've just learned how to, how to capture? And how is that going to open up the possibilities of how we see the universe? And how's that going to benefit life? There's just so much out there that I don't think it's it's safe even to discount the science that we do because you never know when that science is going to teach us something new that's going to revolutionize the way that we operate here on Earth. Yeah, I think there's been, throughout the years, there's been loads of um, studies and evidence shown that, you know, experiments done in space have benefited the Earth and that sort of thing. I, I do take their point about resources, um, you know, are we spending them in the, right, in the right way? But I must admit, my inner nerd is absolutely with you. I'd be like, there must be more out there. There must be really interesting things to sort of learn um, that can benefit people back on earth you mentioned um diversity there in a different format from the one i'm going to ask next but what about women in space um are there any billionaire women who are working on getting into space or do they just know something (laughs) the lads don't I admit, I don't even know how many billionaire women there are in the world. Um, you know, um, I'd have to go look. I, I, I'm off the top of my head. I can think of one. Um, so how many women in general are there funding these companies, um, funding these avenues of space? And there's just not that many. There's a few women investors I know of. Um, and, and that's simply a product of the fact that for the longest time, I mean, I'm just going to speak to the United States history right now because I don't know globally how it operates. But here in the United States, it was just a couple of decades ago that women could not have their own bank accounts, their own credit cards. Um, you know, just women have been excluded, not to mention jobs, of course, but <laughs> women just have been excluded from the business world for so long that women independently making money that they didn't inherit is a fairly new concept here in the United States. Um, and and it's just going to take time and you know active effort, not passive, but active effort to decrease the inequalities and not just gender inequalities, but also racial and, and other types of equalities that we have um, and making sure that we give people equal access and also make up for the fact that there are a lot of people who have been historically not included or actively discluded. Is that a word? <laughs> anyway, actively left out of the picture. Um, and so... You know, the reason why there's not that much wealth in terms of, you know, women billionaires, I think, is because they just haven't had the opportunity to make the money historically. Um, I, I know at least um, from my side of the family, my my, my uh, grandmother was went into teaching this because that was an acceptable career path for women at the time my grandmother worked. But um, that doesn't make much money. Right. <laughs> so what was also socially acceptable, what is currently socially acceptable for women to do um, still Women are told that, I mean, I'm a mother, right? I'm a mother and I've been told that I should be focusing on, you know, raising my children rather than having a job, having my own company. And I just ignore people like that. I'm a strong feminist, but there are people out there who have that mentality and who dissuade others or put on that guilt, right? And so for the people out there who think, well, 
men are just better. That's why they have all the money. <laughs> and no, that's just historically ignorant. Um, so one of the things that we should do is then look to see how we can actively include people who have been not included. Um, and so, for example, one of the things that I um, volunteer for, I'm a mentor for the Brooke Owens Fellowship. So those of you here in the United States, I think I think it might be open more broadly, too. I'm not entirely sure. But women and gender minorities each summer can have an internship. And they, these are um, women and gender minority undergraduates who have um, an interest in aerospace careers. And so um, go look that up if, if you're interested or if you know somebody who's interested. There's other groups like that that are actively trying to promote groups that have been not included historically. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that, you know, maybe I, I don't know so well on the incubator side, but maybe there's a an incubator specifically for you know women or specifically for um, African-Americans, specifically for people who have been excluded in the past, who maybe need that extra encouragement, support and funding for, for frankly, you know, that, that extra boost of, you know, here's some starter. What are you going to do with it? What, what fantastic things can you do with this little bit of a head start here? Yeah. Um, just to answer your question, 336 of the world's 2,825 billionaires, that's in 2019, or 11.9%, uh, are women, and that's saying, or female. Not many, huh? Not enough, not enough, not enough. Apart from that, what are the questions troubling you about the space industry right now? Troubling me. Okay, so one of the things that I don't like is hype. <laughs> and the space industry is all about the hype, right? And understandably so, right? There's, um, you, when you're trying to get money from Congress, you need to hype up certain things. Um, geopolitics is an area that's hyped up a lot. We have this so-called coal, uh, space race with China, um, which is definitely not a space race. It's a competition here in the United States where China is advancing its space programs. But it, it is a way to hype up this competition with China to get more money from Congress. Other ways hype... Um, one I mentioned earlier, that you mentioned that um, that figure of how much the space economy will grow by 2030. That is hype. That is saying space is fantastic. This is where you want to go. Never mind that our figures are sort of inaccurate. Uh, don't don't look at that too much. <laughs> but that's especially important when you're looking at trying to in attract investors and therefore investors who have not been very active in aerospace or have not even thought of aerospace before are suddenly looking at that number thinking, wow, maybe I should get involved. And then they may or may not be um, you know, talking to the right people who give them the best advice as to where to get involved and, and whether that's a, a really accurate figure to expect the industry to grow. Um, so hype, I think, does too much damage. Um, go fever is another area. I'm a little bit wary of some of the go fever right now with the suborbital transportation. I'm hoping that this ends up being just fine and I'm just being paranoid. But we want to make sure that we don't have go fever when human lives are on the line. This is with commercial spaceflight. And this is also with government spaceflight. If we're trying to meet an arbitrary deadline of, say, 2024 landing humans on, on the moon, um, we want to make sure that go fever doesn't happen, that we have these, these milestones that we want to fit because we've hyped up humans to the moon in 2024. And we've hyped up um, you know, Virgin Galactic on July 11th and, and Blue Origin on July 20th. And I want to make sure that we make, you know, Space, like I said, is historically <laughs> delayed, um, but we still want to make sure that we do it safely because any early accidents are excuses to shut things down, excuses to doubt, excuses yeah. to pull back funding, yeah. um, whether that's government funding from Congress or whether that's investor funding from private industry. And we just want to make sure that we do things safely. And, and I, that's where I think accuracy comes in, on, into play, making sure that we don't hype things up too much or, or mislead people, that then we um, lose people, we get people get jaded or, or think that we're lying.
applying to them, which, you know, if you look back at just a few years, there was a bunch of asteroid mining operations that unfortunately went nowhere. And so maybe people are a bit more jaded now when it comes to asteroid mining operations in the future, which they may or may not have you know, justification to be a little bit wary. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I want to protect against is people getting inaccurate information or too hyped up over things that maybe they should be a little bit more cautious about. Do you think that Trump's um, Space Force sort of played into that? Is it that people sort of got a bit of an eye roll moment? Or do you think that didn't hurt so much? Yeah, the messaging of the Space Force did, did not help because Space Force is actually um, a legitimate uh, you know, need. It, you know, whether or not they called it Space Force originally it was supposed to be called Space Corps. Um, it was it was actually something been talked about for several years. And it is something that the United States has actually already been doing for quite some time. Just this was all going to be brought under the same umbrella, supposed to be uh, streamlined and supposed to be grown a little bit. But the rally cry of Space Force as a political uh, talking point, as a political movement. And uh, it didn't help that Netflix had that comedy of the same name. Um, Definitely. And to be honest with you, um, their social media postings don't do them a very good job either. It's it's easy to make fun of a lot of their their messaging on social media. So um, it's it's a very serious topic. So one of the things that Space Force does um, is tracking of space debris for the world, tracking of space objects, I should say, for the world. It's a service that the United States government has been doing for decades now um, because we want to know what's up there and you want to make sure nothing's going to hit, collide, because there have been accidental collisions in space that have caused a lot of new space debris and we don't want that to happen so there's a uh, part of the space force now that um you know united states has been doing it for a while under a different name and now they're doing it under the space force that is needed that is something very valuable so you don't want to make fun of the whole thing while ignoring that there's actually really valuable work being done by the space force messaging however is not I should also mention, since this is about power, right, one of the things also is Space Force might accidentally, in a way, cause some other governments to then increase their military space operations by, um, you know, assuming that the United States is doing the same, by um, playing up this whole space as a military ground for operations, which, of course, it is and always has been, Um, then it really turns space from where I personally want to see it, which is more science and commercial operations into then an area of, you know, greater conflict um, where we are paranoid about what our adversaries might be doing in space and therefore might act um, harshly or um, rashly in the future when it comes to space operations by other governments' militaries. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. So U.S. space policy, um, a lot of talk around space is really that it's going to address opportunities and vulnerabilities in surveillance, um, mission deployment, cyber and artificial intelligence. You sort of alluded to it a minute ago. Is it just a big play for control again or is there really good thoughts behind it? And both, right? So, um the, the Gulf War in the 1990s, that was seen as the first war where space was really used by the United States government. And, and that gave the U.S. government real, um, you know, real benefit <laughs> over their adversaries of making sure that they could see what was happening. You know, there's different ways to use space as reconnaissance, as communications, as you know, data sharing. I mean, even just operationally space, you know, jamming satellites and, and um, being able, unfortunately, um, kinetically disrupting satellites that hasn't been done operationally yet, but there's been something called anti-satellite kinetic tests that have been done. Um, and so that kind of thing is problematic um, because it creates space debris. But the other things are 
um, normal, right? We've always had <laughs> reconnaissance and, and spies and out there, right? Um, and this is just a new way to get that data. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of practical reasons why you'd want to be up there. Earth observation is full of fantastic examples of why you'd want to have eyes on the ground, um, either to um, see what your enemies are doing or just see, you know, even see what your friends are doing, see what's going on in terms of emergency management and how you can help people around the world um, catch, um, you know, illegal logging, illegal looting, um, slave ships. Um, believe it or not, that still exists. And, and there's been different ways to use Earth's observation from satellites to really catch this illegal activity for the benefit of society, whether or not it's being conducted by your adversaries or just in general, helping, you know, to make sure that we don't disrupt society, um, you know, making sure that we can benefit society with these eyes on the ground that we have. So there's real practical reasons. Mm-hmm. And of course, weather satellites and that kind of thing, um, emergency response, all of that is extremely beneficial. Um, so there's different re- practical reasons and, and there's going to be, it, it's a tool, right? Yeah. So anytime you have a tool, there's so many different ways to use it by so many different parties. Let's talk about who owns those tools and that sort of stuff. When I think of space, I do think of a bit of a race because, you know, that's just the first thing that we've sort of been told by Hollywood. And that's the number one. Is it fair to call it a space race still? Um, And number two is who who has the power when it comes to ethics around space? Depends on what you're talking about with a space race. So f- for my understanding of a race, there need to be at least two players that have a similar milestone goalpost finish line. Um, so even the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States um, in some ways wasn't exactly a space race because the Soviet Union actually beat the United States through several of those early milestones. And it wasn't until the United States decided that landing on the moon with people was the final finish line that we've decided that we won the space race. Um, but you know, for example, I mentioned China earlier. China has very different milestones, very different goalposts, very different timelines than the United States does. So it's really not fair to call that a space race. There are lots of people who disagree with me. That's fine. It's a competition for sure. But when you have, for example, the Artemis program trying to land humans on the moon by 2024, and China is um, doing a space, uh, uh, um, international, what do they call it? International lunar Base. They have a name for it. Um, it's blanking on me right now. But they have a mission to the moon with with Russia, and they aren't planning on sending humans until at least twenty thirty six. So that's a twelve year difference right there. So to me, that's not a race. To me, that is similar goals but different timeline. Um, but then when you talk about a space race in terms of commercial companies, that is something I can get behind. There's definitely a space race, unfortunately, right now this month with Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin trying to be the first to launch their billionaire founders to suborbital space. Um, It's a bit of a silly space race, in my opinion, but I'm still excited about it Uh, just because I think, wow, I'm I'm more excited, to be honest with you, with the other people on board those flights. Um, Wally Funk, she is going to be a passenger on Blue Origin's New Shepard mission on July 20th. I think she is a phenomenally deserving person to be on that mission. If you don't know anything about her, look her up. Wally Funk, she was a member of the group that's now known as Mercury 13, a group of women that never got to, a chance to be astronauts. So she's finally getting her chance. Oh, um, I, I know some people who are going to be on that um, Unity 22 flight with Virgin Galactic on July 11th. So um, I'm really excited about that one, too. So that's the, that's what gets me 
excited. So that's a little bit of a space race with the billionaires right there. Um, but, you know, in terms of a, a larger picture, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin have different missions and different uh, motivations. So they are competitors for sure, but they still have different places that they want to go with their companies. Um, Blue Origin and SpaceX can be seen as competitors for sending humans to the moon with the human landing system and the lunar exploration transportation system, which is the next branch of competition there to send people on the moon beyond Artemis 3. So Artemis 3 is the one that's going to hopefully land people on the moon by 2024, although realistically more like 2025, maybe. Um, and then after Artemis 3, presumably there's going to be an Artemis 4 and an Artemis 5 and an Artemis 6, etc. And so that's where additional competition can come in. And the two big players right now are SpaceX and Blue Origin. SpaceX has their um, modified Starship that they're going to land on the surface of the moon. And Blue Origin has their Blue Moon project. Mm -hmm. There was a third competitor called Dynetics. Don't know if they're still in the competition for real. Um, you know, they're still officially in the competition because of this um, protest in the government accountability office. Um, but in practicality, I don't know if they're going to be real competitors going forward. Um, so we're just going to have to keep seeing how that space race goes, because I think that's a little bit of a space race there, too. Mm. So there's lots of um, people doing lots of different things when it comes to space. Um, obviously, um, space flight is definitely one that people are watching carefully because they've seen it in films and that sort of stuff. What uh, I'm thinking more sort of long term and permanent, though. So what's your best guess for permanent human settlement on, say, Earth's moon? Nobody really knows. So I'm just going to be speculating. He's speculating here. This is science fiction. This is, this is a realm of not reality because it's so far in the future. Right now we have NASA with its Artemis program, which is not just the United States. It's not going to be like Apollo where the United States landed. And yes, we had a plaque that said we landed for all quote unquote mankind. But we are actually going to send other people's astronauts, other countries' astronauts, other nations' astronauts. So Canada is going to be, uh, there's going to be a Canadian astronaut on the Artemis II mission, which is the one that's not landing on the moon, but going around the moon. And right now, it's not final, but there are other countries that are also probably going to have astronauts in future our Artemis missions. Um, and so that is exciting there. But is it going to be permanent? That is going to be up to Congress. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, everything's up to Congress, right? Because I think if you go back to um, July 20th of 20, I'm sorry, July 20th of 1969, when we first landed Apollo 11 on the moon, I think people would have thought that'd be permanent, right? Um, there were talks that we'd have, you know, additional missions to the moon for, for decades and then also head people to Mars and all these great fantastic adventures that did not happen because we had won the space race and the Soviet Union collapsed. So there was no reason for Congress to keep funding missions to the moon. Instead, they focused on space stations. So <laughs> what's actually going to happen with the artist program? Well, I hope it's going to be different this time because the idea is that we're involving commercial partners. And again, economic sustainability, if the commercial partners, if these commercial companies can make money, then perhaps it'll be sustainable regardless of government um, funding. But in reality, it's still extraordinarily expensive and it's still in the realm of governments. So whether or not we have a permanent moon base, um, you know, starting in 2024, 2025, or, you know, I don't know. Nobody really truly knows. It's really going to be up to the U.S. government. Um, thinking a little bit longer term, I mentioned that um, China and Russia want to go set up a moon base starting in 2030, 2036. Um, whether or not that stays, that date, 
um, is not within my realm of expertise to analyze. I don't know enough about China's um, historic, his, the history of China's space program to know if they have delays um, and, and what kind of delays to look at. But, um, you know, historically speaking, they do do what they're going to say for most of the time. And so they have this long term thought process and they do. China wants to establish itself as a not just a big space player, but also a big world player. So I could foresee China deciding that they want to have either a permanent presence on the moon or at least a you know, survey missions on the moon um, starting, you know, in the 2030s. And that might be enough incentive for Congress in the U.S. to decide that they want to continue <laughs> sending people to the moon as well. We'll just have to see. Um, but that is where the space race co- idea comes in, is that if you have that geopolitical incentive to keep going, plus the the monetary incentive from private industry, then that's going to keep things flowing. Or we might decide that it's not worth it and we want to go to Mars instead. And that is the ultimate plan, right? The ultimate plan is to go to Mars and beyond. And so maybe they give up on moon missions to go then to go to Mars. <laughs> so no one really truly knows the future. Maybe we've decided that space stations are actually going to be the cool thing to do because who wants to be in a gravity well? I mean, gravity is actually fantastic for humans, but it's really expensive to launch things off of a gravity well like another planet. Um, and so we humans do, ben- do benefit from gravity, but maybe just economically speaking, it's easier to have space stations. And therefore, instead of having moon bases or Mars bases, we decide in the future that we are going to have just space stations. Nobody really knows, but it's really fun to think about. And it's really fun to think that someday, not too far in the future, the world is going to look so different than it does right now. We just have one international space station and a brand new Chinese space station and nobody on the moon. That's going to change. And that's what makes it really exciting. I think for a lot of people, it comes down to simply um, smaller travel times to places, you know, and if we're thinking of remote working, could you live in London and uh, travel to uh, Australia to, to work? Yeah, that would be possible in a day you know and that's the thing there's some really interesting um you know science and physics around it when i when i that's where i'm sort of at you know living on the moon and that sort of thing i think it's absolutely fantastic i I don't think i'm going to be in my lifetime but i certainly hope to see it i really do um right let's do desert island tweets the part of mouthwash where we pick a tweet or two that has changed the guest mind or way of thinking in some way um so please turn your attention to the nest on your mobile phones and i will pop it up to the top um it might take a couple of seconds just to sort of pop up so let me just see when it does there we go um laura why why this one why did you pick this Sure. Yeah. So on my screen, you can't see the image. You can't see Elon Musk's Just tweet. All it. you can see is Lindsay Starling's tweet. So you might have to click on it to see what the image is that she is retweeting. So the image that Elon Musk posted from SpaceX is this gorgeous image, this imagined future of a violinist playing in microgravity, in, in whether or not it's on Starship or some other facility that it, presumably SpaceX will put up. I mean, back then in 2018, when he tweeted this, it was called BFR, if you remember back that far. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that really captures my imagination is the possibilities of bringing humanity to space. Because yeah, we can talk about the science. I'm a scientist, right? You can talk about the science. You can talk about the, the practicality of doing R&D or manufacturing in space. You could talk about the geopolitics of having spy satellites and all that. But what really captures me is this concept of bringing humanity to space, to bringing humanity to worlds outside of Earth, and really expanding our human understanding of space in general and of of our solar system and our place in space. Um, And so that picture 
um, that Elon Musk tweeted is just absolutely a gorgeous like idea, concept of what could happen in the future. Um, and around this time, there was something announced called the Dear Moon Project. So there is a billionaire in Japan who bought a trip on Starship in the future to take himself and off the top of my head, I think it's like seven or eight people with him around the moon. And those people he wants to take with him are artists or creatives. And so it was imagined that he's going to take a bunch of artists or creatives around the moon with him, that they would create some kind of art, whatever that art may be, whether it's, you know, painting or dance or music, or, you know, he's opened it up to what he's calling creatives. So whatever kind of creative outlet that they have. And that retweet by Lindsay Sterling, some of you may not know that name. She is a musician. She plays electric violin. If you haven't heard her stuff, she's fantastic. And that concept then, that little drawing that somebody made at SpaceX of a violinist in space took somebody who has no position in space, in the space industry, uh, a musician, um, a fairly famous musician and said, hey, that could be me in the future. Because her retweet was, is this an invitation? Right? And so not only are you opening up the possibilities of more of humanity going in space, you're also inspiring people who had never thought that they had a place in space to then think that they do. And I think that's just beautiful because that's what we're aiming for. That's my ultimate goal is to open up space for all of humanity and to have a better representation of humanity in space. Oh, I think that's a great sentiment to leave the conversation tonight. Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of uh, Mouthwash Laura. A any final, final words for the uh, listeners? Yeah, so along the lines of I was just speaking of, some of you may already be involved in space and some of you may not. Some of you may just be interested, but had no idea of how to ever get involved in space, right? I mean, all of us use space on a daily basis, whether we realize it or not, but you could actively get involved no matter what your background is. You do not need to be a scientist or engineer. I'm a scientist. I'm a little biased in the science, but you do not need to be a scientist. Part of what I do is speaking to individuals who come from different backgrounds and telling them how they can take their business background, their communications background, their, their financial background, their, um, you know, their um, medical background. There's you know, all kinds of different backgrounds that people have with skill sets and experiences and mentalities and perspectives that could benefit space, whether that's a space company or whether that is just the conversation around space. You asked about ethics earlier, and that's a totally different conversation where there are people out there who have literally studied ethics, who can talk about the ethics of um, commercializing space and and you know making sure that we have workers protections in space and and diversity and equality in space there's so many different areas where people who have no stem background or no background in space can then get involved in the conversation and really benefit so if you are not yet involved in the conversation think about it think about ways that you could get involved and reach out to me if i can help Amazing. Thank you, Laura. Um, I uh, Okay, that was uh, episode one of season two. Thank you all for listening. How did we do? Let me know and the world by using the hashtag mouthwash show. A few of you did it for the questions and I tried to work them in. Um, I'm really thrilled this season to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me. Um, I've curated a bevy of brains from Bloomberg's Brad Stone. He wrote the Jeff Bezos um, autobiography uh, to Beauty Stacks' Sharmadine Reed. Uh, we've got the inventor of the hashtag, a Kung Fu master, uncertainty 
sovereignty experts, just to name a few. We're exploring power and the forces that surround it. Uh, some you'd expect and a lot you won't. Um, up next uh, is Caroline Goida. She is founder of the Gravitas Method and the viral TED Talk sensation. Her TED Talk's been seen by over 9 million people. And if you want to know how to talk more confidently, increase your chances of securing a raise during a pandemic uh, and be perceived as powerful, listen in same time, same place tomorrow. Check out the website mouthwashshow.com for full details, downloadable calendars and links to previous episodes, which are now uh, podcasts, uh, thanks to Spotify, Apple Music and all good podcasts and platforms. Uh, once again, thanks to the phenomenal Lucy Forsick. Uh, please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for him as we lo-fi music plays us out. Um, it's just time to say thank you again for joining. Thanks also to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener we get in season two. We're here Monday to Friday with the brightest brains from the TBD stage and beyond. So please drop us a review using the hashtag tag and find out more details over at mouthwashshow.com i've been paul armstrong this has been mouthwash fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on twitter spaces so off your pot brush your teeth and make sure you start and finish your day with plenty of mouthwash 